It's been a few weeks, uh, so I want to kind of remind you of, of what we're doing in the study and where we are. We've been working through the book of Genesis, kind of working through uh, several chapters in the book of Genesis, thinking about foundational truths that we find in this passage. And so far, uh, we, we start at the very beginning, the fact that God created the heaven and the earth. I started talking about the fact that Genesis 1 uh, seems to point to a literal week, six actual days in which the Lord made everything. And then we walked through the bulk of those six days and looking at specifically what he made. And we're going to finish that up this evening with the pinnacle of God's creation. And as we've been working through this series, we also are, are, are noting the fact that this answers key questions for us as we're considering the nature of reality or, or trying to, to form a biblical worldview, a biblical perspective on reality. And this evening, we're going to be in many ways answering the question, who am I? What am I? What, what is mankind? What is humankind as we consider God's creation of mankind? So let's read beginning in verse 26 of Genesis chapter one. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And every beast of the earth and every bird of the sky and everything that moves on the earth, which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made. Behold, it was very good. There was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. I said this is the climax of creation, and I think we, we see that in several things. One is this is the final act of creation. We said at the very beginning, what God is doing in creation is taking the heavens and earth that he made that initially are unformed and unfilled or uninhabitable and uninhabited, and he forms it and fills it. He makes it inhabitable and then uh, inhabits it. And he does so many ways to get to this point. He's creating a world for humans. And so that's why at the very end, we find the final act of creation in which he makes humans. Additionally, this is the only time in this account in which God kind of stops and thinks about what he's going to do or talks about what he's going to do. Before, it's just, let there be this, and then it happened. And now he begins to say, so let's do this. But let's, let's create this thing and then creates it. And additionally, we see an emphasis here in this passage on male and female being made in the image and likeness of God, something else that nothing else in creation has. And so there is this emphasis that mankind here is the pinnacle of God's work of creation. So I want to take a little bit of time this evening to, to think about uh, what's being said in the passage and then to think about two important theological issues or truths 
and then to, to think about some implications for us. And I'll say right now, we're not going to, to get a whole lot into verse 28, as well as the second part of uh, verse 26. Will Lord willing come back next week and, and think about God's uh, purpose and his commands to humanity? Uh, we're not gonna have time to delve into that this week. And so we'll be back in this passage, Lord willing, next week. But at the very beginning, we, we have something that's created a lot of questions. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Now, why does that create questions? Well, it creates questions because you're wondering why is God using plural here? Who's the us? Who, who is our image? And I, I don't want to overwhelm you, but I, I do want you to at least be aware of how different people have tried to understand this. And I want to begin with two options that I think just are really bad options to try to understand what's happening here. The first is to say that this in some ways is a holdover from a polytheistic perspective. That they're, you know, eventually the Jews will become monotheists, but they started as polytheists. And this is kind of a holdover for that. But that doesn't make any sense in light of what we see in scripture. In fact, what we see is not that originally there was polytheism and then slowly people developed monotheism. It's actually the opposite. There was monotheism, and over time, people devolved. People fell away from that into polytheism. And so this isn't some kind of remnant of polytheism here. Additionally, some say that God's essentially talking to the rest of creation. And I just think that's a really bad option to really think about what's happening here. It's not as if he's consulting the heavens and the earth as he's thinking through what he's trying to do. So how might we understand this? Well, some possible options that I think are, are legitimate, and there might even be uh, people here in this auditorium who, who would hold to these positions. Uh, one is that uh, God is talking, in a sense, to a heavenly court, angelic beings. We haven't really talked about them yet in this text. In light of what we see in Scripture, it seems that, that most likely God made them at the beginning of the first day. Um, in part because we talk about in Job that they, they sing when God laid the foundations of the earth. And so there are angelic creatures. Perhaps he's talking to them. I think the tension with that is I don't know how we understand then made in our image and after our likeness in that understanding. And so I, I, don't, I don't really think that's the best way to, to see what God's saying. A common way to take this is that this is simply a plural of majesty. It's like the Queen of England saying, we are not amused. And she's not talking about anyone but herself. Right? And so that is the kind of thing that happens in language. It could be simply this is talking about God as a majestic being, and therefore it's using plural uh, pronouns. Uh, the word God actually itself is a plural of majesty. Uh, the word used here is a plural. It's the same word that sometimes is used to talk about God's. So that could be what's going on. I think one tension with that is there's only four times, as far as I know, in the Old Testament in which we have this let us kind of language. And so uh, if it is a plural of majesty, it's certainly not a consistent usage that we find in the Old Testament, which leads to, I think, a view that tied in with the view I think is best kind of is, is, makes sense, that this is a kind of self-deliberation. Who's God talking to? He's talking to himself. And how can he talk to himself? 
Well, we understand that God is one being in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, to be clear, I don't think this text is a text that we can say, ah, Moses understood the Trinity uh, because he said, let us make man in our image. I don't think this is uh, a fully developed perspective of the Trinity here in this passage. But I do think we were beginning to see a perspective that God is a unity. He's one God, and yet there is a plurality within that unity. And there's even perhaps uh, some indication within the text that we could expect that because back in verse two, we find the spirit of God who is moving over the surface of the waters. And so I think you can have some indication that you have God and his spirit who are both at work and in play in this. Certainly as we come to the New Testament, we understand more fully how this works. That God is, as we just sang in the song right before this, Father, Son, and Spirit. And yet I think here at the very beginning, we we see language that is consistent with that reality. And I don't think Moses would be unable to grasp that any more than we would be unable to grasp that reality. That he could understand there is a plurality within the unity of God. And I think that's what we see happening here. That God as a divine trinity, triunity, is conferring among the Godhead about this. And what does he say? Well, he says, let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. Now, some have tried to to make a distinction between those two terms. You have the image of God and you have the likeness of God. Those are two different things. But really, I, I think the best way as we see these words used is that they are more or less interchangeable. If there are slight distinctions between them, they're not significant distinctions. And so I think it is just largely another way of saying uh, likeness or a kind of image or reflection. And yet, I think it is important to note when he says, let us make man in our image, he is talking about mankind in general. You might even have a translation that translates that way, which I think is perfectly legitimate. That he's talking about mankind in its entirety. He's not just talking about Adam here. And we know that in part because of what he says later on. He says, let them rule over the fish of the sea. In verse 27, it says he made them male and female. And so he's not talking specifically about Adam. He is talking about mankind, humanity. That he is describing making humanity in the image and likeness of God. And in verse 28, we find out that's exactly what he does. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. And that's repeated because this is important. This is something that God wants us to understand. At the very heart of being human is this reality. We are made in the image of God. We are created in God's image. And he did this. He created him male and female. He created them. And we'll come back a little bit more uh, to, to some significance of that. I want to briefly look at the end of this passage, uh, verses 29 to 31. Uh, just to to see how God closes out his work of creation. In 29 and 30, we find that God not only creates the world, but he provides for the world. He provides a world that that is filled with food for the creatures that he has made. I've given you every plant yielding seed is on the surface of the earth. Every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And the emphasis there is on the plenty. 
It's not, hey, there's a few in the back corner you can use. It's everyone. There is a a generosity that's given here. And as well, verse 30, to every beast of the field, to every bird of the sky, to everything that moves on the earth, which has life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And this, I think, is a passage that indicates in the garden, there was no death. Everything that has life does not eat each other. Instead, they eat plants and vegetables. They eat fruit, things that do not have life. Which helps us to see that death is only something that happens later. Which is why in verse 31, God gives his final summation of what he has made. God looks at all that he made. And behold, now it's not just good, it's very good. It's exactly the way that God wanted it to be. It's all working according to its purpose and reflecting his wisdom and his glory. It is now complete. So I want to now think a little bit more about what does it mean that mankind is made in the image of God? In this text, there's not a whole lot here. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? We don't know other than understanding what the the word itself means. That it is a reflection. There is a likeness that in some way humans are like God. What does that actually entail? Well, I think as we look in the rest of scripture and even understanding that mankind is uniquely made in the image of God, it makes sense that we would say what makes humans distinct from animals? And what else do we see in scripture that points to the fact that man is made in the image of God? And I think this does point to man's capacities for for reason, to be able to think, to be able to use logic and to, to come to conclusions. It includes aspects of man's will, his volition, that he can determine what he's going to do and how he's going to act. And he can make choices. It includes linguistic ability, the ability to communicate and to speak. And we see this because God has all of these things. God's already demonstrated he can reason, he can think, he can act, he can make choices. I think there's also a spiritual or religious aspect to this this reality that mankind has moral and ethical uh, sense and can make moral and ethical choices and can know and worship God, understand who God is and can worship God. Additionally, there is, I think, a kind of physical resemblance we might say. And we need to qualify that. Because does God have a body? And the answer is no. God is a spirit and does not have a body like man. And yet, I think it would make sense to say that man being in the image of God does in some way include his physical body. And I think so in part because when he made man, he made him a physical body. Man is body and spirit. Additionally, Male and female, he made them. I think that's pointing to physical realities. And so I think it makes sense in some way to see in this text, the fact that man's body is a reflection of God in some way. And Dr. McCune, uh, former professor of Old Testament, former president of our seminary, 
uh, said that, that potentially even when God made Adam and Eve, he had in mind the kind of body he had prepared for the second person of the Trinity. Because before he ever made the world, he knew Jesus was going to come. And he knew the body he had prepared for him. And so perhaps in some ways, our bodies are a reflection of the body he had prepared for his son, Jesus Christ. And I think all that's important because when we understand the image of God, the language in scripture doesn't necessarily say somewhere in us is his image or some aspect of us is his image. The emphasis is we are his image. We as whole persons, body and soul. And who we are points to and reflects who God is. Now we'll deal with this a bit more as we work through the text, but I think an important question that often comes up is, are we still in God's image? We haven't gotten yet to the fall. We haven't gotten yet to when sin is introduced. And yet some people would say, when sin comes into the world, the image is lost. And so now we no longer have the image. But I think as we look at scripture, a faithful understanding of what scripture would have to say is at a minimum, not all of the image is lost. Genesis 9, 6 tells us that, that murder is wrong because man is made in the image of God. James 3 tells us we need to be careful in what we say to people who are made in the likeness of God. So then the question comes up in a sense on the other side of that, has any of the image been lost? And there are, again, perhaps men in this room I know there are, are men who, who have taught me uh, who would uh, say none of it's been lost. And they make this distinction. And, and if you get lost here, don't worry about it. If this is helpful to you, great. Right. That the image of God relates to mankind's capacity for the things we talked about. His, his, his capacity to be able to reason. His capacity to be able to choose his capacity to be able to communicate, to be able to worship. That is distinct from his moral perfections in it. Man can reason, but now that he's sinful, he doesn't use his reason to know God. He uses his reason to deny God. Man can communicate, but now he uses that ability to communicate to denigrate people made in God's image and to speak against God. A man can make choices, but now he makes these choices in ways that are sinful. And, and some would say, this has nothing to do with the image of God. The image of God is just here. And if that's true, then we really haven't lost the image of God at all because we still have that capacity. Now, you might guess the way I set it up, I don't agree with that position. And since even though there are people who are probably smarter and more knowledgeable than me would disagree, they're not the ones teaching this night, tonight. And so I will share with you what I think. Right? And what I think is these are in some way, part of the image of God. That the, the moral perfections are an aspect of that image. And these have been marred or lost. And yet, in God's work of new creation, they are being restored. And I think a text that would point to that would be Colossians 3 and verse 10, that we have put on the new self, which is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created it. And so I think both our natural capacities and our perfections were originally part of God's image. 
These have been lost even while these remain. And yet these are now being restored in believers and one day will be perfected. So that we will be fully in the image of God. Either way though, I think we cannot deny in some way we are still in the image of God. Whether fully or partially, we retain God's image. And there are implications for us from that, which we'll talk about here in a moment. But a second truth that I think is important for us to begin to to think about from this text is that mankind is made male and female. As one commentator pointed, Genesis 1.27, which tells us that God created us in his image, also tells us that he made us male and female. Evidentially, sexual differentiation is something important, something vital to who we are. Now, in this text, it emphasizes the fact that we are equally in God's image, male and female. There's no distinction in this way, that we are equal in God's eyes. We are both in the image of God. And perhaps even in some way, in order for us to understand God's image, he had to make us male and female. As we go along, we'll see, I think that God, in light of the fact that he made us male and female, also gave us different roles and responsibilities. That will be in coming uh, passages that we look at. Here, I think it's just important to note that God, in making us male and female, did not somehow make a mistake. This is not some kind of second choice. He intends for humanity to be manifest in these two sexes, male and female. And that's how he wants us to understand who we are. So some implications then, as we're thinking about what we should think about ourselves and what we should think about our world in light of what God says here. That when we ask the question, who am I? The shorthand answer I think is this, I am a person made in God's image. I am a created being. And that means I'm not a machine. I'm not just some kind of collection of information and data. I am a person created to reflect and know God. But secondly, I'm not an animal. I was, came across recently someone talking about the, the movie Zootopia. I don't know if you remember that Disney movie, but they were arguing or they were saying, it's funny in that movie, there are no primates. There are no monkeys. There are no gorillas. And I said, well, we think the reason there are no primates in that movie, because if you include any primates, you have to then explain, why don't you include all the primates that include humans? And so it was easier for them just to not have any primates at all. Now, is that why? I have no idea. But that arguing and reasoning, I think, reflects the general view that we're just another form of animal. And Genesis 1 would tell us we are not. We are distinct from animals because we are made in God's image. And I want to just talk through a few things. Dr. McCune in his systematic theology talks about some ways in which we are, as humans are distinct from animals. One, that we are self-conscious. Self-conscious means I can think about myself as an object of thought. And, and I don't think animals do that. Animals react to the world around them, but they don't stop and contemplate their own existence. As someone said, as, as an animal is, is dying, it's not stopping and thinking, so what will happen to me after I cease to exist? Animals don't think that way, but humans do. 
We have self-consciousness. Secondly, uh, we have concepts and languages that we can communicate abstract things like love. And you can teach your dog to speak, but you're not teaching them to speak like humans do. They're not communicating in these kinds of ways. They're not talking about uh, concepts and ideas like being made in the image of God. They can't even talk about that. They don't have that capacity for language and communication. Third, we have judgment and reason. We can draw comparisons. We can make associations. We can generalize and we can come to conclusions. There are no animal courts. They're not trying to evaluate. Okay, so how should we live in this way? You guys come to a conclusion and let us know. That's how we live. That's how we interact. Fourth, self-determination. We can work towards self-improvement. We can set goals. You didn't stumble across your cat's New Year's resolution list because your cat does not have one. Animals don't think that way. And yet humans do. And then finally, we have a conscience. We have a sense of right and wrong and ethics. And we understand we are accountable for those things. So these are the kinds of things that set us apart from animals. We are not animals. We are distinct. We are people made in God's image. But the flip side of that is sometimes there's a tendency in our day to think we're not just creatures. We're actually gods. And this passage would tell us, no, we're not gods. We're made in his image, but we're still created. And at best, we are a reflection of his perfections. At best, we give some sense of his glory, but we do not fully share it because he keeps that to himself. We are not gods, we are creatures. Another truth that's important for us to consider this evening is that sexuality is designed by God and a gift from God. As I've heard some people say, you are male or female in every single aspect of your being. And therefore your job is to embrace that reality and be thankful to God for that reality. He made you male. He made you female. And this is a good thing from him. A fifth truth for us to consider is that every human being bears the divine image and thus deserves respect. That all mankind is made in the image of God. And that's why, for example, in James chapter 3, It says, with our tongues, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and curse. My brothers and sisters, these things should not be this way. Our speech to and about others reflects our understanding of the fact that they are made in God's image. And so consider as you talk to and about people, you are talking about people made in the image of God. Hope. Don't get sidetracked. But perhaps if you followed at all the news right now and and people who are in prominent positions in our society who seem happy with calling for the slaughter of a certain group of people in our day, you can wonder how is it possible for people to talk about people that way? And one of the reasons is they no longer think of them as people. That if you're considering this is someone made in the image of God, how could you possibly not care about their life? How could you possibly flippantly talk about 
their murder. And if we're doing that, we are not thinking of people the way that God would want us to think of people. These are people made in his image and therefore have a measure of respect. I heard it illustrated this way. If I were to take out a photo of my children and show it to you, is there any value and significance in that photo to me? The answer is, yeah, there is. Is it more valuable than my children? No. I value the photo because of who it's a picture of. But if you took that and you ripped it in front of me, I wouldn't say, well, that's not a problem. That's just a picture of my kids. I'd say, what are you doing? That's a picture of my kids. And when you treat the pictures of God with disrespect, God rightly can say, what are you doing? That's a picture of me. How can you treat them in this way? Sixth truth for us to consider is that every human life is valuable. Eventually we'll get to Genesis 9, 6, and yet I think it's important for us to consider it even now. Whoever sheds human blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made mankind. In a biblical worldview, eugenics has no place. Eugenics is the belief that certain kinds of people are better than other kinds of people. And it was very common in the early 1900s, and it has not really gone away. Because even today, we think certain kinds of lives are more valuable than other kinds of lives. And your scripture would say life itself is valuable because the person is made in the image of God. And that's one of the reasons why assisted suicide or medical assistance in dying, which is just a euphemism for saying killing someone medically, is not permissible. It's also why abortion is not permissible because it's a human life. That life is made in the image of God and therefore it is wrong to terminate that life. That life is valuable, not because of the potential it has, not because of the possibilities, not because of some abilities or gifts, but because it is human. And all humans bear the image of God. But then some final truths that this passage would remind us of is that we as people have purpose and meaning because we were created by God. And so our life is not meaningless. It has value because we're made in the image of God, but it also has meaning and purpose. We were designed. The flip side of that is we don't decide that for ourselves. We don't get to determine our purpose. We don't get to determine our meaning. It was already given to us because we are created beings. We are created creatures. And so therefore we are called to do what God has made us to do. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to you that you chose to make us. And Lord, the incredible privilege it is to be made in your image. 
So Lord, we ask that we would do what you have designed us to do, that we would reflect your being, your person, that in who we are and how we live, we might point to your majesty and your glory. Lord, help us think of ourselves and think of others in this way. Lord, may we never trivialize human life. May we not use our tongues to cut down those who are made in your image. But may we, in how we speak and how we act and how we think of ourselves and how we think of others, do so in line with what your word tells us. We ask this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.